Hello and welcome to What Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your hosty Green, chats with a special guest every week about horror films. And in particular, we talk about two horror films that have to do with a certain subject or topic that I've previously randomly chosen. So this week is all about a horror movie classic monster. It is all about vampires. Um, I'm surprised it's actually taken this long to do an episode on vampires, even though we have done, I suppose we did like 80s vampire films um, last year, and we've covered Dracula as well. Um, but yes, yeah, so this episode is all about vampires, and I'm sure because it is such an all-encompassing kind of topic, there's going to be more than one vampire episode. Um, vampires come from all over the world. It's not just, you know, if one thinks Dracula was the original, it's not. There are vampire tales or vampiric creature tales from Eastern Europe, um, Asia, including Japan, China, India. There are even Irish legends of vampires, such as uh, the Jargdur and Avertok as well. Um, so yes, the vampires, they come in many forms in horror films as well. That's the great thing about this is that there is not just one law when it comes to vampires. There's a lot of kind of different adaptations and interpretations of vampiric lore in horror films. And that's what makes it such a great topic. So my guest this week is Josh Grant Young. And together we are talking about two vampire films. We are talking about 2019's Doctor Sleep, adapted from the Stephen King novel. And we are also talking about the Korean Thirst from 2009. So enjoy my chat with Josh Grant Young about vampires in horror. So I would like to welcome to the podcast, Josh, how are you today? I'm doing well, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on and chatting about today's subject with me. Yeah, I, I spent the last couple days voraciously consuming vampire media, so I'm <laughs> thrilled to get started. Good. Um, so before we do start into this week's uh, topic, would you like to introduce yourself and let listeners know what you do? Sure. Uh, so I'm Josh Grant Young, and I'm a PhD candidate over at the University of Guelph in Canada. And what I do, I'm a uh, researcher of horror. And particularly, I'm interested in horror's um, reflection of certain public anxieties or perceptions about mental health, and how these things, you know, these different movies map ways that we understand mental health, whether it's, you know, I guess, um, sort of cultural ideas that we have or um, whether there's certain anxieties that we share. And yeah, it's, it's something that I found sort of fascinating uh, for personal reasons, but also uh, just in general. And how did you get into horror? And do you remember the first horror film you ever saw? So... I got into horror at a very young age because um, when I think about it, it's hard to pin down the first one, but the first one that really stands out or the first pair that stand out for me are uh, the black and white movie 
um, cat people mm-hmm. and the uh, film, uh, the Ed Wood film, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Right. Because my parents can attest to the fact that I was very big on writing um, short stories as a kid. And they still have this construction paper book that I had made about um, this dream or nightmare, I guess, that I had. I Clearly, I was excited about it, so maybe it was more of a dream, about being chased by zombie vampires <laughs> and being incredibly <laughs> thrilled to write this book. Mm. And they, they still have it somewhere in the house, so it's... It's very early age. Yeah, wow. And do you think, I've asked this a few times on the podcast, do you think your kind of introduction to horror at such an early age has shaped you in whatever way as an adult? I think it has in a certain sense because when I look at the kind of research that I do over the course of my life and the jobs that I've had, a lot of them have to do with telling stories and very human stories, You know, whether it's about stuff that we you know, want or something that we fear, um, you know, whether I've worked as a journalist or I've worked as, you know, you know, as a scholar, I'm usually telling stories about very sort of human concerns and horror is that it's, you know, base element, a sort of psychological response to the world around us and trying to make sense of that. And sometimes we do that by telling stories about, you know, things using metaphors and you know really rich sort of language to try to describe phenomena that at the end of the day are pretty mundane i mean it's like something terrified me but i've created you know creatively elaboratively made this narrative about it as a result Mm. i'm always so jealous of people that are introduced to horror at a young age because i i didn't really get into horror films until i was like teenager i mean i'd already i've always been into like horror literature and stuff like that and like folklore Mm. even as a kid but i'm just and especially to hear that you started off with like val luton's cat people and um i haven't seen planet nine actually yet but i i'm actually gonna watch it after i finished recording this because i've got to watch it for another podcast so good i i i've heard i'm in for a treat (laughs) You, you really are it's it's an exceptional piece of media. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, so let's get on to the topic of this week's subject, which is vampires. So how did you feel when I approached you with this subject? So it's, it's a good one because, I mean, I've already done a podcast about um, the history of werewolves and the werewolf's relationship to mental health. So... I thought to myself, wow, here's another you know opportunity to take a look at a sort of enduring figure of horror and you know give myself an opportunity to explore that. So I was really excited. I mean, I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time watching vampire movies, admittedly. A lot more when I was a kid, but not so much as an adult. Yeah, for me, vampires has always been like they were kind of the first lore that I really got into as a kid. Like, I was like whenever anyone was like, what are you going to be when you grew up? I, I was going to be, I was like, I w- I'm going to be a vampire. Like that's what I'm going to be when I'm an adult. Um, and so it's always like, I've always been obsessed with Dracula. Um, 
just I know I always believe vampires were real I was like if I go to sleep tonight a vampire is going to come get me (laughs) I fully believe they were real um and then once I started getting into horror it was stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer um Anne Rice like interview with a vampire um thankfully I bypassed the twilight craze (laughs) i didn't get into that now oh good i didn't have to out myself as a secret fan of the series (laughs) secret twy hard (laughs) so like vampires have always been that mainstay for me that i'm like they hold a special place in my heart um so how do you feel about vampires and specifically vampires in film so yeah i mean As I've said, I sort of grew up on early black and white horror. So, I mean, one of my first exposures, funny enough, the Dracula. I don't think I watched the Dracula movie first. I think I watched um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, (laughs) which just happened to have Dracula in it. So I had a rather comedic introduction to Dracula. Um, But I did end up watching the Bela Lugosi one afterwards. And I've certainly seen Nosferatu uh, when I was a kid. So... Um, yeah, I, I've always been sort of fascinated by vampires in a certain sense. Um, because I guess for me, um, there's just so many different angles, you know, speaking to your interest in folklore. There's so many number, there's a number of different angles to trying to interpret what the vampire means for people. Because I could imagine, you know, there's a bunch of ways somebody might read Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example, to talk about, you know, the historic sort of anxieties that underpin the novel and cultural, you know, myths and ideas that relate to it. But you always see people trying to revive, you know, uh, this undead figure always returning to, you know, the contemporary. I mean, how many Dracula movies have we seen since? Mm where it's just like, okay, there's some sort of new spin on it. And um, I wonder what they're trying to say in this particular context. I mean, taking Dracula to America, changing Dracula's background, gender swapping Dracula, queering Dracula. There's something really, you know, amazing about the ability to do that with folklore. So I'm always excited. And I've seen that done somewhat with werewolves but i'll admit not as well as i think vampires have been sort of done you know we've been able to do that with vampires Mm. which is unfortunate maybe but i'm i'm glad that we have done that with vampires yeah i'm i'm fascinated with like the origin origins of vampires when i was in university and i was studying anthropology my thesis proposal was on eastern european burial practices um to do with vampirism and it's so interesting that like in this folklore vampires were corpses basically they were gross like almost zombie like um and even in our own in like the irish folklore they're basically resurrected corpses um Mm -hmm. and then obviously with dracula they've been (laughs) turned into um quite sexual creatures um and from there, we seem to have seen this development of whether it is in Anne Rice's vampires of like highly sexualized, highly erotic, or it's in something like Twilight. 
that <laughs> as much as we fight it, it is just another example of sexuality being synonymous with the vampire. Um, mm. Why do you think the vampire has become such an, er- <laughs> an erotic kind of horror creature? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I don't know how much of it has to do with you know, the original sort of Dracula and a certain amount of, you know, mystique and refinement in that particular portrayal of Dracula. I mean, you know, we get this sort of sense from Dracula that, you know, he's this nobleman who has this sort of, you know, almost hypnotic power to, you know, not only um, thwart his enemies, but also you know, attract his victims. And I guess when you're a creature like a vampire, it kind of helps in a certain sense to be able to draw in magnetically, you know, the people who will be your victims. I mean, when we think about, like, even when people use the term vampire or, you know, vampiric culturally to describe, like, people who are, you know, as far as they're concerned, sort of vampires or vamp they're they're talking about like a certain you know magneticness that these people sort of have as a quality you know rightly or wrongly and used for often ill purposes um yeah it's it's often the case that you know these people have this sort of attractive element to them or attractive personality on the surface but we know of course what lies behind the lips or not exactly, you know, ideal. Yeah. Um, so let's begin then um, with your choice of film. And it's it's a bit different than the, the stereotypical kind of vampire, but it's a really interesting take on vampiric kind of depiction in cinema. So would you like to introduce it and give it a brief synopsis, please? Sure, yeah. So I chose for my film... Uh, the sort of spiritual successor to The Shining, uh, Dr. Sleep from 2019, whose director, Mike Flanagan, we all know recently for the, um, you know, great vampire story itself. Um, Oh, darn. Midnight Mass. (laughs) Midnight Mass, yes. There we go. I almost lost it there. Yeah, Midnight Mass. Um, And... Part of the reason I I chose it was I had been talking with my friend about another vampire series, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, and his particular enjoyment of one of the characters who's more of like an emotional vampire. And he's like, it's it's fascinating to me that there's so many different ways that you could slice the vampire. They don't have to just be bloodsuckers. And I thought, well, hey, that's that's an interesting observation that I hadn't really thought about because I could play this you know relatively straight or i could take a different direction with it so i thought you know as a person who's working on dr sleep uh already why not use this as an opportunity to sort of flesh out some things i've been thinking about Mm -hmm. so dr sleep is as i said sort of the successor to the shining so if you go back to the shining the shining is this story of 
a family, Jack Torrance, Wendy Torrance, and Dan Torrance, um, husband, wife, and a son, who moved to the Overlook Hotel for a winter because Jack is looking for a job while he's busy writing the manuscript that he hopes is going to launch his career. And as the three of them sort of settle in over the winter, it becomes increasingly obvious that, you know, Jack, who's been told about the sort of tour, you know, toward history of the hotel, um, is beginning to become a little bit unhinged. And he ends up attempting to murder his uh, wife and son with a whole bunch of ghosts that occupy the hotel also preying on them. So that's sort of a quick summary of The Shining. Ultimately, Jack is killed. Um, he, he dies by freezing to death outside chasing Danny through a giant maze in the winter. And Danny and his mother escape unharmed. So in Dr. Sleep, it sort of picks up a number of decades later with an adult Danny. And he's basically um, still traumatized in a certain sense from what happened at the Overlook Hotel. And he's been sort of uh, mentored in part by the ghost of Dick Halloran, who was somebody that he meets at the hotel who um, had what they call the shine. And this is a sort of a psychic ability to be able to speak with other people without actually having to speak to them. And also to be able to see certain elements of the past and the present and be able to act on them. So Dick has kind of been teaching him as a ghost how to capture the other ghosts of the Overlook in these sort of mental lock boxes. <clears throat> so in the time that's passed, uh, Dan's become an alcoholic and he's done this in part because he doesn't want to deal with the shine anymore. And also because of the trauma of, you know, the Overlook hotels winter. And he is makes an earnest attempt after a series of unfortunate events to become uh, sober through Alcoholics Anonymous and ends up getting a job as a hospital orderly. And while he's there, he uses his shine in a really interesting way by helping to uh, bring sort of peace to patients that are dying and those there nickname him Dr. Sleep. So that's sort of one element of what's going on. The backstory is that there's a group of people who call themselves the True Knot. Uh, and the True Knot is a group of, well, it's almost a cult even, of these sort of psychic vampires who are read by, you know, this interesting character called Rose the Hat. And what they do is they try to find people who have the shine and extend their ability to live because they've lived for 
long periods of time, basically by feeding off of the what they call steam of other people, which is like their sort of psychic essence that you can get by essentially violently um, murdering and torturing and hurting the people that they find who have the shine. So at the time that Dan's getting sober and sort of doing his work, uh, the true knot has basically been for the most part um, starving to death because steam is growing increasingly hard to find in the world. And they commit a series of murders to try to get steam and they're in, in one way or the other become aware of a uh, young girl named Abra and she also becomes aware of them too. And Abra's interesting because she also has the ability to shine, but far greater ability than Danny. And she tries to get in contact with him about the murder. And Rose the Hat and the True Knot decide that, well, they need to get a hold of Abra because you know she's got this incredible capacity to shine. So they head out to go get her. And while Dan is originally sort of reticent to stop the true knot outside of protecting her, he changes his mind and gets together a group of people to basically hunt down the true knot before they get to Abra and manage to do that largely um, kill the true knot with the exception of Rose the hat. And Dan basically gets Abra to go to the overlook hotel with him basically to set up the final showdown between the three of them, Rose the Hat and Abra and Dan, um, with the intention of raising the old ghosts of the hotel to sort of make this, you know, a real, you know, fight. And that sort of backfires because as a result, Dan um, in reviving some of these spirits also revives the ghost of his own father and has to sort of reckon with that past before Rose shows up. And when she does magnificent fight and I'll sort of save the ending for everyone who wants to watch the movie. Suffice to say, I think it's a sort of compelling one. So are you a fan of Dr. Sleep? So I am for a couple of reasons, although I have some criticisms to be sure. Um, I'm a fan of it because I think as far as attempting to do a follow-up to The Shining, 
anybody who tries to like work with the shining material is already pretty much doomed from the start because so many expectations are wrapped up in that that really short of making the perfect film you're never going to be able to satisfy everybody um i think that one of the things that i really enjoy about it is that it really taps well into a common theme of a lot of king's stephen king's work which is sort of reckoning with one's addictions and i think that you know without being too preachy which sometimes i worry king might get close to that um in some people's minds it does a fairly good job of trying to illustrate you know what it means to take on you know your own personal baggage head to head and sometimes confronting you know deeper traumas that are there and i know that some people probably thought it was really hokey to bring back jack torrance for you know especially since you can't do it with the original jack nicholson and thank god they didn't try to do it with like some sort of de-aging thing like uh like that Scorsese movie, The Irishman, because that would have been terrible. <laughs> but um, yeah, they I think the way they did it was kind of, you know, very respectful of both Stephen King's work as an author and Stanley Kubrick's vision of what The Shining looked like, because originally totally at odds with each other. But I think this movie does a really good job of marrying those two seemingly opposing things and bringing it together. Um, no. Yeah, the so I'm going to make a confession. When I first saw Doctor Sleep, I literally the day before just finished the novel, um, and I was so excited. I was on tour in Glasgow, and I, a couple of hours before the show I was due to play, I I went to see Doctor Sleep. And I was so pumped. I was like, yes! And because I was such a huge fan of the book, I hated it. <laughs> I yes. hated the movie. I was just so angry about it. Um, But now going back and watching it and watching it through the lens of, you know, okay, it's been a while since I've read the book. It's not fresh in my mind. And I'm looking at it from like a vampirism kind of um, lens. I enjoyed it a lot more the second time round. I read up a bit about Flanagan and he was like, look, I couldn't just do it all kind of King's way. Because when you say The Shining, when you say Torrance, when you say The Overlook Hotel, everyone thinks of Kubrick's The Shining, you know, pretty much. Um, All those images are burned into our heads. So he was like, I had to marry King's vision as well as Kubrick's vision. And I can understand that now thinking about it. Um, I love the way that... We, we've got these energy vampires who, like you said, feed off the steam of people. And it, it kind of reflects another way of vampires. I mean, at the beginning we said, you know, vampires are sexy and they live forever and blah, blah, blah. But there's another side to vampires that are sim- symbolic of addiction. You know, they, they're addicted to blood, they're addicted to energy, to life force, and they cannot live without it. Um, and that's very representative of an addict, 
Um, so I liked the way it married that into the story. Um, so what did you think of the depiction of the vampires? So, yeah, I, I, I like to pick up on the sort of thread just there about addiction, because I think if you're somebody who's ever experienced addiction, there are like different ways that you experience addiction. And, um, yeah, I, I think with the true knot, there's something, you know, certainly compelling about the fact that, you know, these people are cruel and really, um, driven in their sort of desire to feed. And we can certainly like realize that that is the case, but yeah, I mean, we also can think about the fact that this is not something that, you know, we can totally look at them and say, well, these people are in control of their situation because I mean, looking at the way that their entire life now basically revolves around extending themselves and basically feeding for the express purpose of staying alive at this point in a world where they're quickly running out of the thing that they need. Like that's, that puts you in a very desperate position to be able to, you know, be uh, able to prolong yourself. I think the nice thing is that you also have on the other side of the equation, you know, what, what do you have? You have, you know, Danny with several people in his life, who affirmatively help him work through that sort of addictive part of his life and stay, you know, sober and structured in the face of, you know, easily. And he does get possessed by, you know, the, the hotel near the end of the movie and becomes just as potentially violent and dangerous as the true knot is to Abra and to himself. So it does have an interesting, again, perhaps to some people, preachy message about addiction. But yeah, it does sort of open up another sort of way to thinking about vampires where it's not not so easily cut and dry to say that, you know, when one's a vampire, that this is entirely, you know, their own volition. And uh, I think when we talk about the next movie, it'll be interesting to sort of see how that pans out in the next one but yeah so i i liked the i liked the depiction i think the true knot itself was actually um not as scary like you said as the book kind of makes them out to be at mm -hmm. times but at the same time too flanagan does something really neat with them that you know i appreciated a great deal yeah i mean the rosie the hat she is terrifying like, I, I just think she's so fantastically played by Rebecca Ferguson. Mm -hmm. um, it's just this coldness and this, just this need to do it um, and to survive. It's all about survival for them. And at times I felt kind of sorry for them because I was like, not when they're killing a kid, but <laughs> I was kind of like, you know, 
they're just trying to survive. They're a family themselves that are just trying to survive. And unfortunately, they have to do it through some really terrible means. And I think that's one of the thing with Stephen King's characters is you can always find some human uh, characteristic with them that even though they're meant to be monsters at the same time, you kind of feel like, what would I do in that situation? Like, you know... (laughs) Right, yeah. And I don't know that anyone would have a very um, compelling answer to that question in the sense that I think we all can recognize, you know, in certain ways our own limits morally in that sort of situation. Um, Especially if we've been there. You know, we, we might know a thing or two about how challenging being in that mode and mindset can be. Yeah. So what did you think of the ending of Dr. Sleep? Now, for me personally, this is probably my biggest peeve about it is that, so I'm going to be that dickhead who's like, oh, it's not like the book, but (laughs) I just felt that a lot of the changes that Flanagan made was super unnecessary, Um, especially, spoiler spoiler alert, but the death of Danny in the book that doesn't happen. Um, And I just, I can't figure out why Flanagan changed that. So yeah, you've hit the nail on the head for one of my main criticisms of the film, which is an enduring and disappointing aspect of, I mean, horror, but even other genres, which is, our response to mental health and society uh, in the stories we tell often involves, you know, if it ends up being connected to monstrosity or if it ends up being connected to certain elements of fear, we have to destroy it. Or, you know, in the case of Danny, in order to overcome, you know, his trauma, in order to overcome all these other things, he necessarily has to die for some sense of closure in the film. And I don't, I don't like that. Like as, as a person who experiences different mental differences and as somebody who writes a lot about, you know, mental health, when I watch movies like this, or I watch, you know, even worse movies like uh, lights out, for example, um, I think to myself, like, come on, do we really think that like the only redemption arc for people is to like make heroic sacrifices Mm. heroic in quotations of course sacrifices for the benefits of others you know just because of you know they're so steeped in trauma in their own lives like they don't deserve their own redemption arc too like come on come on and you're right the book is so much better in the sense that it's like yeah we get to see danny live and you know get to explore (laughs) you know, his recovery in an even more sustained way. And that feels kind of like a cheat. Mm. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. Like, the whole point of this, especially King's book, is that Danny does get this redemptive arc. You know, he's gone through the fire. He's gone through absolute shite. He's gone through that self-destructive mode. But he can come out the other end. And it's the same with 
addiction with mental health is that you can come out of it at the other end. You know, it's like, it's not like you said, where you don't have to die to redeem yourself. Um, And especially in the book, we find out that Abra is actually blood related to Danny. Um, It turns out her mother is Danny's half sister. And it was just so good and in the book to be like right Danny has family now like it's he he's welcomed back into the arms of a family and I just I felt like Dr. Sleep just went for the cheap easy way out unfortunately the film um so yeah I I would love to know why Flanagan did that (laughs) yeah hopefully you can you can get him on the cast just, just question him why did you do that <laughs> yeah but i need to know <laughs> but even during the film there's still like i mean abra's dad dies during the film that doesn't happen in the book nope. um billy dies during the film doesn't happen in the book and it's just i just don't understand the need for this death because it already is quite horrific i mean yeah. that the the scene where the the child gets killed is hideous yes so I don't really understand why there's need for more death. <laughs> I I don't either. You know, I, I like to, you know, think that there's some method behind Flanagan's like decisions there. And I know that, you know, he's, he's the king of really tugging at your heartstrings. I mean, when we watch like the haunting of Bly Manor or Hill House, he, he does a great job. And even midnight mass, like you, you certainly get, um, an emotional reaction out of the audience, but it doesn't work here. You know, it, you don't have the same sort of emotional gravitas at certain points that you do in those, you know, television series. So it's, it is kind of disappointing that it feels a little bit cheap and a little bit of a cheat to just wipe out half the cast in the course of 10, 15 <laughs> minutes. Um, so would you recommend Dr. Sleep to horror fans? So I would, because I'd like to think that despite the flaws that we've just sort of outlined, um, it is a good movie for several things. I mean, it's a good movie for thinking a little bit about um, what it means to make a sequel in a very contested ground. Because, I mean, you know, it's it's we're always remaking movies and retelling stories. And when you have a story that so many people have very loaded opinions about and very loaded perspectives, like it's a real challenge to do that. And I think any horror fan who wants to, and any aspiring horror film director who wants to think about, well, how do I engage a story that's already been told and told well, like how do I, it's, it's like writing a thesis in a certain sense. You've seen other people do it really well. And you've seen all these people do amazing research. It's like, how do I break into that storytelling mode? And I think that's, you know, perhaps a useful thing to work on. I guess I'd also say, you know, for the reasons that we talked about in terms of the psychic vampirism, um, it's, it's a different way of looking at the vampire. And I think it's one that's in a certain sense refreshing because... You know, we can either look at them as, you know, 
these horrific beasts that are constantly feeding in this monstrous way. Or we have, you know, like you said, the sort of sexy, seductive vampires who we often humanize and give these elaborate, um, you know, multi-century backstories to, to sort of humanize them. So, um, but still, obviously they, they do the vampire thing, but psychic vampires, it's a different kind of feeding. It's a different kind of motivation and it's a different type of psychology, I think. Mm, So I think, you know, just for that, those reasons, it might be worth taking a look at Dr. Sleep. Read the book. Definitely read the book because you'll be a lot happier with that one. But, <laughs> um, you know, the movie itself is, it's a good time. Yeah. I i would recommend it for, see, I don't know. I, I'm, half of me is like, oh, I'd recommend it to the Shining fans. But other times I'm like, maybe I wouldn't because I'm not sure how like diehard fans of The Shining would take it. Like I'm not particularly a massive fan of the Kubrick Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm more of that like dickhead who's like, it's not like the book, um, like I said. But yeah, I mean, give it a watch. I think perhaps if you separate it from the book can separate it somewhat from the shining, but still understand that it's like it's spiritual sequel. I don't know. Um, It's hard because I wasn't a massive fan of it when it first came out. So I understand people's kind of are towards it. (laughs) That's totally understandable. (laughs) So let's move on to my choice then. Um, My, choice of film for vampires is uh, the 2009 Korean horror film Thirst uh, produced and directed by my favorite director of all time Park Chan-wook it is loosely based on the 1867 novel Therese Rakan by Emile Zola and it stars Song Kang-ho as a Catholic priest who he he goes and decides to become part of uh, an experimental medical treatment um and he gets exposed to the ev virus and then he's he gets a blood transfusion but the blood is vampiric blood so he becomes a vampire and he soon begins to realize that if he doesn't drink blood, the EV virus takes over his body and he produces like nasty boils on his face. So he has to keep drinking blood to keep the EV virus at bay. In the meantime, he kind of comes into the home of a childhood friend who is married to this woman that he falls in love with. She also falls in love with him. Um, They plot together to kill her husband um, and eventually he decides to turn her into a vampire as well with catastrophic results. Um, So what did you think of Thirst? I gotta say, I was so thrilled when you picked this movie because I hadn't watched it yet, admittedly, and I was excited to sat down with my friend who I watch all my movies with and it was a roller coaster. Like I laughed hysterically at certain points. I cringed at others. I was, 
you know, really invested in what was going to happen in the film. And it's, it's a really great movie. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as I said, I'm a massive, massive Park Chan-wook fan. Like his vengeance trilogy was my whole personality when I was a teenager. (laughs) Like, um, I love him. And I love this. I love this film as a vampire film. Like it's so, it's it's not just like folklore and legend, which is good, but we've seen it a lot before. But it takes on a medical, scientific, um, almost viral, um, like personification. And but at the same time, it doesn't forego that typical erotic sexual vampire who is lonely and is desperate for a mate, but sometimes that doesn't quite work out. And I, I loved the love story. Um, it was just really twisted as well. I really enjoy, I mean, don't get me like South Korea is just amazing for horror. They have this special sentiment that like you said, can make you laugh. And it just, oh, ah, chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about the portrayal of vampirism in thirst? So I, I, I want to pick up on, you know, the idea that you brought up, which is, you know, this is a type of vampirism that again, you know, is sort of predicated on a necessity to feed rather than a desire to feed at first. Like, you know, we see the characters sort of develop where um, at, at first he's not really keen on, drinking blood you know the very idea of blood just sort of makes him sick and then slowly you know you you see like comedically him lying (laughs) down just drinking out of somebody's you know iv you know and uh it's just like okay you know in a certain sense it's still always about survival because you know it it comes back at regular points that you know if, if he doesn't feed like he falls apart so, you know, there's always a sort of necessity to do so. But, um, yeah, he certainly evolves to a point where, you know, there's also a certain level of pleasure in this as well. So I, I think it's an interesting, I mean, it's a, it's a movie with a lot of interesting nuances. So it's, it's I'd say, I think it's a good, interesting way of bringing it in. Like I said, the viral thing that you mentioned too. You know, it's it didn't seem totally hokey like sometimes when, you know, they're like, oh, yes, science, let's invoke a sort of scientific explanation for why scary things happen. Sometimes that can just be so unimaginatively boring crap that it's just like, well, I would have just been happy with the guy in the cape who turns into a bat <laughs> yeah. at this point. You know, yeah, call me a dumb person for liking folklore, but... You know, I'll take it over your incredibly, you know, elaborate scientific explanation any day, I guess. One of the things I really like is its backdrop uh, is its backdrop in the Catholic Church. Yes. Um, so 
like I said, the the main character, Sang Hyung, is a Catholic priest, um, which I think is very funny because obviously in Catholicism, you drink the blood of Christ um, when you are going through communion. Um, and to see that flipped on its head where this Catholic priest, I mean, he's kind of having a bit of a, his faith is kind of shaken a lot because he sees a lot of sadness and that kind of gets to him. And instead of like taking the blood of Christ, he literally, like he said, he has to, he's like, there's this coma patient that he sticks an IV in and he's literally got water bottles. And when he's not sucking it straight out like a straw, he's like <laughs> funneling into these water bottles. So I really liked that kind of uh, dichotomy of the Catholic face, uh, faith versus vampirism. What did you think about the depiction of religion in this film? Yeah, I think it was it was interesting because, you know, as somebody who grew up around Catholicism, um, you know, going to Catholic school, you you have to memorize by rote all of these prayers and all of these rituals. And when you're a kid, you're normally just like, oh, like this is weird, but I'm going to do it. And um yeah, you like you get the sense that you know some of the prayers that he's you know speaking in the film, or you know even the sort of mea culpa, you know smacking himself with a <laughs> ruler every time he gets aroused. It's like somebody clearly uh, you know has a very you know a very uh, specific interpretation of like Catholicism's um, sort of paradoxical. Um, obsession with and refusal of the body because on one hand it's it's very much of the body and about the body and you know not only the spiritual body of the church but you know the sort of body and blood of you know christ as well for catholics but um you know then there's also the sort of like refusal of desire the refusal of you know and denial of certain feelings and certain emotions and certain lifestyle choices and uh, certain relationships. So it's, it's nice to see that there's this sort of drawing attention to this complicated set of feelings around mm. the body itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at the center of this film, we have this kind of love story uh, a very complicated love story between the Catholic priest and the wife of his uh, childhood friend. Um, it it starts off, you know, she's very imprisoned by her mother-in-law and by her husband, and she she's only there because she was an orphan and they took her in, and she's very suppressed. Um, and once... Um, our main character, Sang Hyung, comes around, she finds herself kind of liberated sexually and then eventually through her vampirism as well. You know, he, even when he's a vampire, he's very, he feels very guilty about everything, about, you know, having to drink blood. Um, he, he's not a fan of it. He doesn't enjoy his vampirism. Whereas she, she fully embraces it. She soars and she enjoys the kill she enjoys she even says at one point it makes it taste better um what did you think about the character of teju and their central love story 
Well, it's interesting that, you know, for Teishu, there's this, like, like you said, the, the sort of sentiment that, you know, their fear or their pain makes it taste better. And it's interesting, one of the connections you can draw between the two films we're talking about is that the sort of same sentiment comes out in Dr. Sleep, that, you know, the steam is so much better when people are, you know, put through more pain and agony to be able to you know, harvest that steam. So there's that element that I thought I'd just sort of throw away talk about. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, Tiju's character is like such a polar opposite in, in a lot of really impressive and funny ways too. And yeah, like it, it her arc is fascinating in the sense that you're right. We get, you know, somebody who's, for all intents and purposes, treated like absolute garbage by the family that adopts her. And her husband is a total moron. And <laughs> I, I'll say that unreservedly. Um, but yeah. And, and, but ultimately like, yeah, the person she becomes, you know, do we really, I, I don't know if we want to pass judgment on her any more than we want to pass judgment on him. But because I think they're both, reckoning with sort of a massive change in who they are they just take very different roads in how they interpret this change that happens in themselves and i think with her it's it's more challenging because it comes from a place of you know being like you said repressed in so many ways that you know you can't really fault her for enjoying her newfound freedom from a lot of these sort of crappy circumstances that she came through um you know for him it's it's interesting because you know that you have that whole element of battling with his faith with his guilt um but yeah i mean her story is is pretty fascinating overall yeah i mean it's interesting to see how the vampirism affects them and I guess it depends on the kind of person you are, how, what kind of a vampire you become. Um, like one of the other kind of vampire films that it kind of reminds me of is Interview with the Vampire, where we've got Louis, he's very guilty about his vampirism. He's got a lot of guilt over it, and whereas Lestat enjoys it. Um, and we've seen a lot of vampire films. We've always got that dichotomous relationship with vampirism you know you've always got the vampire who doesn't really enjoy being one and then ones that are just like well i am one and let's enjoy it um so it's it, it's weird to have that theme and i guess we could say that about dr sleep as well you know there's a point where rose the hat says to danny you can join me like i would love to have you and he's like no i'm not gonna do that where she has fully embraced it and become this psychic vampire and lived her life to the fullest is what she can. Um, so it's always really interesting that we've got these two battling kind of attitudes towards vampirism in a lot of vampire films. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And yeah, I guess that is sort of the challenge that you're, you know, faced with in, that situation is, you know, what do you do? You know, I don't know that I'd have a clear answer in that situation, but. 
I was just about to ask you, what kind of vampire do you think you would be? Would you be the the Catholic guilt uh, vampire or would you be the let's all hell break loose? (laughs) Um, You know, I, I mean, I have a hard enough time um, with the idea of eating uh, non-human animals that would already be <laughs> a challenge to be like, okay, well, I mean, humans, at least we can say that uh, some of them are bastards, whereas animals, I don't, I don't know necessarily if they're bastards. Um, um, but yeah, I, I think I would probably end up being one of those guilty vampires who'd be like, well, I don't enjoy doing this. I take no pleasure in the idea of, you know, having to harvest people for my own benefit, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I terribly enjoy that lifestyle. Okay. You're, yeah. you're one of the nice ones. I'd be yeah. like, hell no, I'm going out and enjoying myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so would you recommend thirst to horror fans? Oh, a hundred percent. I would totally recommend thirst. Like I said, I, I watched it the other night with my friend Gordon. We paired it with, um, the last lover uh, what was that oh. jim jarmish movie <gasps> only lovers left alive only lovers left yeah. alive yeah yeah and that was that was itself a great pairing too right? afterwards i was like oh i should have picked that movie that would have been a really interesting combo to talk about but yeah no i would i would definitely you know i always support anybody who tries to adapt an emile zola book um i will always support um you know korean horror it's it's something that i'm a late comer to but i've always been impressed by korean horror um and i i definitely say watch it because you know it's not even a straightforward uh vampire story i mean there's a lot of comedy in it there's a lot of you know again scientific as opposed to supernatural elements um, and it's it's actually a very human story at the same time too, as we've sort of discussed. You know, faith, guilt, versus you know liberation and a certain sense of self control. Um, yeah, yeah, I would um, just because it's part Chan Wook, um, but also like you said, it's a very human story, um, and it's one that I think a lot of people can kind of relate to. Um, Myself, personally, I am more of a, if I wasn't going to choose Thirst, I was going to choose 30 Days of Night, because I really love, like, feral animalistic vampires. I really, it's just, so I don't, I don't really like Only Lovers Left Alive. I didn't like Midnight Mass. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, a lot of the time, I don't want my vampires with big human qualities. (laughs) I love seeing them real animalistic and bloody but like you said there's something about Korean horror that is just it's just so perfect like it's it's emotional and it's funny and it's bloody and it's twisted and I really enjoy that so yeah I would definitely recommend Thirst even if you're like me and you don't really like sappy vampire films <laughs> well if you don't like sappy vampires how do you like your werewolves i you know what i am werewolves i think is the one 
genre of um horror that I'm I'm not well versed in because I just feel it's such an underused trope of horror. Like the werewolves have got the shit end of the stick. Like let's be honest, they've really had the shit end of the stick when it comes to um horror. I love like werewolf folklore. I love American Werewolf in London, like, mm-hmm. and I loved Ginger Snaps. But other than that, like, I can't really think of a werewolf film that I was like, yeah, that was really fucking good. No. no Ginger Snaps, shout out to Canadian uh, yeah. werewolves. <laughs> so, I, but I think it's such a shame because werewolves and vampires are kind of synonymous. They go hand in hand a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's such a shame well, in my opinion, maybe I'm completely wrong, but there hasn't been a film that has married them well. No, I mean, Underworld is perhaps good for like a two-minute adrenaline rush when you get to see bullets flying and gore everywhere. But yeah, like it's in terms of actual storytelling, I, sorry to all the Underworld fans out there. It's, <laughs> it's crap. It's not, they're not a good series of movies. Yeah, no, they're really and, not. Um, and the Van Helsing movie with... Uh, oh my God, I had to watch that the other week. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to do that. <laughs> oh, it was so bad. I'd forgotten how bad it was because I hadn't seen it since it first came out. Yeah. And I watched it again and I was like, oh no. Like, this got made. This has Hugh Jackman in it. (laughs) (laughs) Stick with the Wolverines, Jack. Oh, God. No, let's let's put that back into the vaults. Um, But, yeah, it is such a shame that we haven't had... It just seems the werewolf is always kind of pushed towards, like, a side character when it comes to vampire films, like vampire and werewolf films. I just think that's such a shame because I think there's so much material there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so out of the two films, if someone came to you and asked you to choose between the two when it comes to vampires, which one are you going to recommend over the other? Well, I think we're going to be in agreement here in saying that Thirst is the one to see first. Now, Thirst comes first for me because I, I think it's just, you know, it's I do like my films, you know, even if they're dark and tragic in a certain sense, there's got to be some sort of levity every once in a while. And I think it's just a very rich and complicated movie. And as much as I like Dr. Sleep and it's rich and complicated in its own right, I would probably say thirst. Okay. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go with thirst as well. Um, Just because I love it and I love Korean horror. So that's my, Mm -hmm. my reasons. Um, So what, do you think is the future for vampire films? It's a great question. I mean, I don't know if it's the future as much as what I hope the future is, but I'd like to see as strange as it sounds, I'd like to see a lot more discussion of the psychology behind vampires. Um, And I'd like to see more fluidity in terms of, you know, thinking about what exactly vampirism is. Like I said, when we talked at the beginning about, you know, uh, what we do in the shadows, you know, the idea that there are psychic vampires, there are emotional vampires, there are blood-sucking vampires, you know, let's, 
let's let a million vampires bloom and just sort of see what sort of strange <laughs> new interpretations can mm. come out of that. You know, just continually deconstruct the vampire and, you know, let all sorts of weird interpretations come out. Yeah, I definitely think there's room for, like, a new vampire lore in this day and age where we are so attached to technology and uh, getting as much information as fast as possible. Like, I, I don't know what that is. Like, I can't quite imagine it in my head, but I would like to see someone else interpret that and mm-hmm. be like, right, we're going to... You know, we've seen, like, demonology set in uh, current times with technology stuff like host. We've seen, like, ghosts set in technology with stuff like unfriended and whichever... There was another one that had friended as well in it and I can't it was like exactly the same but we've seen that so I'd really like to see that with vampirism as well yeah no it would be great to see a sort of technology oriented vampirism because again there's so much you could talk about there about you know humans relationship to the environment around them we could talk about um like you said sort of you know data driven discussions of the vampire social media Uh, yeah there's a lot of different ways I mean, even within, you know, the kind of media apps that we use to communicate with each other, there's always an element of predation there that could always be explored in, you know, very interesting and hopefully sensitive ways, too. Um, You know, we've got a lot of problems with, you know, the things on our phones and (laughs) on our computers and the ways that people can exploit those, too find new victims every day is um, nothing short of mind-boggling exactly um so before we go i usually ask my guests what is your favorite horror film (sighs) okay what is my favorite horror film well um if we skip and hop a little bit away from korea to japan um is a japanese film that i've declared much to the annoyance of most of the people i know who know what the movie is um i would say Hausu is probably my favorite horror movie of all time okay i haven't heard of that so is it i take it you recommend it is it what kind of a horror is it so imagine that you gave somebody who makes pepsi commercials a tab of acid <laughs> and then made them run around in a haunted house <laughs> right and base most of the horror off of what a little child tells them is scary okay right that that, is... <laughs> that sounds fascinating <laughs> It is a real, like, I I would not recommend imbibing in any substances the first time you watch it, (laughs) like I did, but, you know, it's it's a real wild ride. Okay, Um, I'm just trying to look it up. How do you spell it? Uh, H-A-U-S-U. Okay, right. It's from the 70s. Okay, right. That's going to be interesting. So there definitely was acid involved. (laughs) If it was the 70s. For somebody. (laughs) Um, 
thank you so much, Josh, for coming on and chatting about vampires with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been an exceptionally fun about hour now. Yeah, about yeah. an hour. So. And if people would like to find you on social media, where can they do so? Well, they can find me on Twitter. Um, that's the main one that I tend to use. I'm posting a lot of stuff about what I write or podcasts that I'm on. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, nobody wants to see my Instagram because it's just a bunch of pictures of the forest uh, <laughs> around where I live. But um, yeah, if, if they want to follow me on Twitter, that'd be fantastic. I'm always interested in growing my horror community outlook, you know, finding right. new people with new podcasts or mm -hmm. new interpretations. That was my chat with Josh about vampires and horror films and together we chatted about 2009's Thirst from Korea as well as 2019's Doctor Sleep. So let me know what you think about this week's episode. What do you think of these two films? Um, are you interested in the energy vampires of Doctor Sleep or do you prefer the more traditional vampires of thirst uh, let us know on our social media that is what a screen podcast on facebook and instagram and you're more than likely better off finding me on twitter at what underscore scream where you can also keep up with uh, my writing as well um, it is finally august is finally fright fest month i'm gearing up i've seen a lot of screeners a lot of good films that people need to catch when they're at fright fest um, myself and Tim have an episode out on the Moving Pictures Film Club podcast about the Fright Fest films and what we think of this year's lineup and what we are looking forward to seeing so keep up to date with that as well as the Moving Pictures Film Club coverage of Fright Fest that will be at the end of end of the month when Fright Fest is on um so as always I hope you are staying horrific and goodbye <laughs>